Good morning. It's a beautiful passage before us today in 2 Corinthians and encourage you to have your word open uh, to this great passage. Um, And I wanted to give you a little context from last week, uh, chapter 3. And actually, I'm going to include uh, the last verse of chapter 3 in the reading of the first four or six verses of chapter four today. Um, the missing piece we heard Reed talk about last week is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's no longer conforming to a law or trying to do that. It's not in keeping rules. Uh, the Ten Commandments, we have all broken each of them. They are glorious, the Ten Commandments, because they, as Reed said, point to the holiness of God, and there's nothing higher than that. That's the first priority in the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be thy name. So they are glorious, but uh, they have limits. There's something much better that has come, and that is Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ. And it's him that we see both life and light. Now, I just wanted to introduce these few verses with a thought, and that thought is in blindness. Uh, Physical blindness back in Jesus' time was fairly common. They didn't have interventions like we do today, and many people were blind or significantly visually impaired. And Jesus uh, gave sight to many. I mean, that was his most common miracle, was restoring sight to the blind in some spectacular Things were happening as eyes were opened. And of course, all of his, all of his uh, miracles had spiritual significance. It was the most, not only the most frequent one, but I, I think it's the only miracle Jesus alone did. I don't read of that elsewhere, other people doing it. So blindness also can be spiritual. And that's universal. Do you know you were born blind? Spiritually, we couldn't see. We, we actually had very blurred vision as newborns physically. But spiritually, we were blind, could not see one iota of what was going on. God alone is the one that gives us spiritual sight. Sin is what causes this blindness. And God is the one who takes care of sin. Now, there was a prophecy in regards to this about light coming. You know, when you're blind, you can't see light. But light was coming. Matthew 4.16 quotes Isaiah, The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And more from Isaiah, Jesus in his first sermon And Luke 4, 18 and 19 said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That Lord's favor, by the way, is grace. And we we receive this. By his hand, we receive it freely. Now, I have a personal question for each of you to think about. Where are you right now? I mean, not physically, 
but where are you? How is your vision? Are you anxious? Are you stressed out? Are you distracted? Then a, a word might be this, be still, which is cease striving and know that I am God. One of the most beautiful places to begin our vision is to be still before God and know that, number two, that the Lord is our shepherd. And in him we have no wants. He cares for everything that we need. I would say this, keep your eyes on the shepherd. Sheep that are watching the shepherd never get lost. They never kind of go off the trail because that's not where the shepherd is. So keep your eyes on the good shepherd. Maybe your position right now is that you're satisfied. You're satisfied with where you are. But where are you? Where am I? We're right on the verge of eternity. You know, these decades roll by fairly quickly. And so don't get too comfortable. You can be blind and not know it. It's like the Laodicean church, which was just a few miles down the road from Colossae. And the words in Revelation to them were, for you say, in Revelation 3.17, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. That word always from Christ is an encouraging one. So even if you are lost in the sauce that you can't see, he says, I'm pointing it out to you so that you will turn from your way to my way. Now, let me just read for us the text from today. Again, I'm going to begin in 18 verse of Second Corinthians 3 and go down through verse 6 of chapter 4 of Second Corinthians. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light 
of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This passage is all about seeing Christ. When God opens our eyes, that is, our understanding in our heart and mind, we see Christ. And as you look at Christ, something marvelous happens inside. A transformation occurs that you, your image, starts to look more and more like Christ. And we go from glory to glory as a work of the Holy Spirit in us. Now, Paul, when he wrote this, it had his blindness removed. We heard it in prayer today that on that Damascus road, the blinding light arrested him. But prior to that, he was the top of his game. He was, he had the right gene pool. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. He, He had zeal beyond all of them. He was persecuting the church, thinking he was right at the right place. And then Christ exposed who he really was, one who was lost and empty, one who was going nowhere. And he was in the place of darkness and death. When he opened, when he had his eyes opened, there was a radical change. You probably noticed that. He now became so focused on Christ that all or any affliction that came would not deter him following Christ. And, you know, later in this book, we're going to see all types of afflictions and calamities that he came through. And and what is he saying? Well, he's at the top of the ultimate game now. And that is voiced right here in this verse 18 of chapter 3. Let me speak it again. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the work, from the Lord who is spirit. So into chapter 4, we see this first, uh, first verse saying, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. What ministry? What ministry do you have? You have a ministry. It's a ministry of proclaiming Christ, of telling the good news for those who are lost, You have the medicine that cures. You have the balm of Gilead. You have the word of truth. You have light in that word that people in darkness might hear. The free gift of God, not only forgiveness of sin, but a restored relationship with our creator. It's an astounding place that he's put us. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, and I never want to get away from that, His mercy is beyond description. In Exodus 34, when in in 33, where Moses says, please show me your glory. And he responds, I'll let all my goodness pass before you. And as he does in, in chapter 34 of Exodus, he proclaims his name, the Lord, the Lord. Merciful is the first word of his character traits that comes out of his mouth. He is merciful. When we were lost and undone, dead in our trespasses and sin, 
that we hear these wonderful words, but God, rich in mercy, he, he saved us. He, he loves us. And with that mercy is great compassion and deep love. And so it's by this mercy we have this ministry. He's for you. God is for you. It's good to remind ourselves that this is not, you know, a, a place of we're just trying to placate an angry God. God loves you. He wants to dwell in you. And he's filled with love and mercy. And it's a picture of that in this ministry Paul's talking about. This good shepherd is pursuing us. So, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. Now, in the face of opposition, sometimes my knees get a little weaker. And I think, I'm not so sure that I want to stand right here. And Paul's admonition was to stand firm. We do not lose heart. Joshua was in a similar position as he was stepping up to fill the sandals of Moses. He, he was wondering, you know, this, these are, this is an important position of responsibility. And God spoke to him such a wonderful word of being strong. He said, be strong and of good courage. <clears throat> do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. You know, one of the things that helps greatly encourage you is to know as God is with you. And we hear from Romans 8, the last part of that, that nothing can separate us from his love. So he's with us, and nothing in the universe can separate us from him. So that should be an encouragement to me as well as to you. <clears throat> in verse 2 he says, But we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Here's the opposition. It was right in the church of Corinth. There were those who were trying by their own methods to get the people to go back to following rules instead of living in grace for the glory of God. And, and they were just eroding the principles Paul had taught. Christ is the way that, and the truth and the life. And they were going against that. And he's standing against that. <clears throat> but by the open statement of the truth, <clears throat> he says, we, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So Christ is the truth. He is full of truth. When you see Christ, you see truth. Look at his face. He is truth. If there's any one issue I, I want you to understand today, it's that this blindness can, is replaced by sight. And when you have sight, look at Christ. Focus on him, on his glory, and the beauty of who he is. Look him in the face. He's watching you. Truth <clears throat> comes to the light here, and Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. He's proclaiming it, and he's saying it straight in a straightforward manner. In verse 3 it says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. You know, some of the people you talk to, I hope, some of the people you talk to don't know Christ. <laughs> They're blinded. They, they, need, they need help. 
They need someone to show them the way. And so some of these people that you're coming in contact with don't, the, the gospel is veiled to them. It's covered. They can't see it. Unfortunately, to this point in their life, they've refused to see it. They reject the truth. See all the details in Romans 1. And so caught up as we are with our own agenda that their blindness persists. But they don't understand that the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is everlasting life, eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So even in the Old Testament, we see people, some people, we hear of the opportunity to refuse to look at the life-saving work of God. You remember when the people were grumbling as they were wandering in the wilderness? They did a lot of grumbling, complaining that, of course, that's not this group. But when people complain a lot, God doesn't like it. He doesn't like grumbling. And in their midst, he sent fiery serpents. Now, I don't know what they looked like, but uh, you didn't want to see it. And, and even more, you didn't want to feel one of their bites because they, they caused death. And so the people were dying like flies. And they cried to Moses, speak to God, help us. And Moses did intercede. And God said, here's what you do. You, you make a serpent that looks like one of these out of bronze and put it on a pole and hold the pole up. And anybody that's bitten by one of these fiery servants, a death sentence, all they have to do is look at the serpent and they'll be instantly healed. And so you had a choice in that in the tribe back then. You could look or you could just say you could nurse your own wounds and die. Or you could look at the solution in Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus said when he was talking to Nicodemus. As the serpent was held up in the wilderness for the people to look at for salvation, so the Son of Man will be on the cross. And you must look to him for life. So there's some uh, in our midst that the gospel is veiled to, and they're perishing. They refuse to look but we still have this proclamation of the light to them. You know, pride is, is what keeps people from looking. Um, sometimes pride is subtle. Sometimes it's not very subtle. But it's dangerous. It's a dangerous place to be. Verse 4 says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing. The God of this world is none other than Satan. And he's superb at distractions. Have you ever been distracted? How distracted are you right now? You know, we're distracted all the time by the news events, the riots, the virus, the government. You know, look at this, look at this, look at this. Instead of the focus on Christ, you can look at the problem or you can look at Christ, who is the answer. He's the solution. Look unto him. So Satan knows exactly how to distract us. He's good at appealing to the passions of our flesh and helping us focus on ourselves. And that is an awful place to be. You know, our warfare is more in the heavenlies than it is in this planet. In Ephesians 6, it says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers 
over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. There's also good forces in heavenly places. Remember Elisha, when he was prophesying and helping Israel, the king of Israel, and the, the king of Syria more than once was trying to get to the Israel nation, and God would tell them ahead of time where they were coming. And, and so the, the king of Syria says to his servant, he said, Who's, who is in here in my group that's telling what's going on to the king of Israel? How, how is it? Do we have somebody in our camp that's ratting on us? And he said, nope, it's none of us. It's Elijah, this prophet. He says, what you speak in your bedroom, king, is what reaches the ears of Israel. And so the king of Syria said, let's take him out. And so they find he's in this small town, and overnight they mobilize all of their, a grand majority of their forces. And Elisha's servant goes out in the morning, and he says, the whole valley is filled with these troops. And he comes back to Elisha and said, this is not good news. You know, we are surrounded. We're about to be annihilated. Or maybe just you are. I'm just your servant. No, it would be the whole group. And Elisha prays that the servant's eyes would be open. And as he does, again, a vision, a vision uh, explanation. He said, open his, the servant's eyes. And he did. And he looked all around the valley and the mountainside were uh, chariots of fire and God's angels ready to protect and take care of Elisha. And as the, as the Syrian army came in, Elisha simply prayed, God, take away their vision, make them blind. And they were all instantly blinded. You can hear the rest of the story in Second Kings. <clears throat> but here is a picture of what's going on in the heavenlies. We need vision, and God wants us to get that vision. So the, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the prize, the victory, and that is the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It's the good news of Christ who came to break the bonds of our sin to bring reconciliation with God, to breathe on us the breath of life, to give us light and to show us his glory. We are blessed when we have that vision. Verse 5 says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. One of the most refreshing statements of all time is this for what we proclaim is not ourselves <clears throat> we're very good at proclaiming ourselves you know the, the topic of conversation is all about me and when I've told you all about me then I give you a chance to talk all about me and so Paul says for what we proclaim is not ourselves very wonderful there's no profit in hearing about myself but what we proclaim is Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, it's not just here as Savior and Redeemer, but as Lord, Master, Leader, Father, Good Shepherd, the one who's in charge. <clears throat> He's everything, and I want more of him. So we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants. Now, that's 
following in his steps. Jesus was servant, and he says, you are to be humbling yourselves and to be servants of others. In 1 Corinthians 9, that wonderful chapter, I think one of the, the highlights of it is the, are these two verses, 22 and 23. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. With ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake, not for our sake, for his sake, that you, by my actions, I might somehow bring the gospel light to you. That's a powerful proclamation. Jesus Christ is Lord, ourselves is servant for Jesus' sake. And then this last verse, 4, 6, says this. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now this verse goes from one end of the scripture to the other. This is an all-encompassing one. It starts at the, in Genesis 1, the very earliest part of the Bible. It finishes the implications of this ripple throughout the Bible and complete in the last chapter in Revelations, we again hear light, that he is the source of light. We don't depend on sun, moon, lamps, or candles. He is the source. So this is an all-encompassing verse. And it goes right back to Genesis. Well, Genesis 1-2 says, in, the begin, in Genesis 1-1, uh, God created, in the beginning God created he, heavens and earth. And then he says, in, Gen, in, in the second verse, he said, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. No form, empty, dark. That's where we're starting here. And God speaks light. His first miracle in creation is to speak light. And there was light. There goes darkness. Light and darkness can't hold together. He speaks light, and there's light. And then all the other miracles of creation unfold. And we see this planet Instead of being empty, we see it filled with life, all kinds of life, variety, galore, beauty, spectacular. That's, that's my God. He's the one who creates, and he takes things without form and that are empty and dark and transforms them into light and filled with him. And suddenly an amazing a wonderful structure. I mean, the more you look at the creation, the more you see the spectacular structure that he, it's nothing is without form, except stuff that we put our fingers into. But all has form and purpose. It's a system of spectacular magnitude and beauty and majesty. That's him. That's the beginning of this verse. You know, when man sinned, and lost his standing with God, he lost it all. In him, now, there was no form. There's chaos inside. He became empty. I became empty without God. And 
I was one filled with darkness. That's what happens with sin. It's an extraordinary destruction of something that was made beautiful. Sin does that. And that's where we find what happens with sin. But the next part of this verse tells of a quantum leap in the creative abilities of God. A whole new form of light was made. This light, at the cost of his son's life, Jesus Christ died on the cross, this light shines in hearts. It's not the visible outside representation, but inside there's a core change. He has shown, it says, in our hearts. That's an extraordinary new place for us to think about. It's light in the soul. And instead of chaos and emptiness and darkness, there's now the filling of the Holy Spirit. There's light. There's purpose. There's structure in our hearts. He's done it in an amazing way. He gives us light that we might see him. You know, that's what the Greeks said, that, that we, you know, can we see Jesus? They come up to Philip and said, we would see Jesus. Is that, is that your heart's cry? Would, I want to see Jesus. I want to see more of him. I want to see all of him. I want them all. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. To give. Did you catch it? There it is. Grace again. It's all grace. He is the one who's giving this to us. He's giving us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's giving us understanding of the truth and light of who he is and to the glory of the glory of God, which is, uh, you know, in Hebrew, I, I like that term glory, which means weight, heavy. And it's symbolic of this is not just a light thing. This is not fluff. This is something of substance, God's glory. It's something you can almost touch. Don't touch it. Accept him. It's marvelous. And in the glory in man, we think of a couple of things. It's position. So somebody, maybe or power or something. That's one part of glory. But the equally important part is character. So if you have a ruler or someone in charge who is really amoral, those two don't go together at all. But when you have the picture of the the king of kings, the top one, with character that is explicitly pure, you have glory that is astounding. And that manifestation of glory in First Timothy, it says, he dwells in unapproachable light. No one can see him and live. And yet in First John 1.18, Jesus said, no one has seen him, but the Son, who's at his right hand, reveals him to you. So we get to see God in his face through Jesus Christ. And this glory that he has is astounding. Now, I've always thought of glory as something like the world does. You know, the guy who wins the race, you know, the, the, the marathon runner who comes in has the glory. The team wins, they have the glory. And it's kind of like that exaltation. But in, in this 
It's much deeper than that for God. It's much deeper. When he's coming to the cross, both in John 12 and John 13, just after Judas, in John 13, just after Judas left, so the die is cast, right? Judas is left. He knows he's going out to betray him. He knows this is the hour. And, and what he says at that time is, when he had gone out, when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified. What? And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. The glory began, the ultimate glory began at the cross. You think, whoa, I'm not so sure I want this part of the glory. Paul did. Paul said that I might suffer with him and die with him. But the glory is much deeper than just the exaltation. Certainly it is that. It's the exaltation. He humbled himself, and now he's been exalted on high and been given a name above every other name, it says in Philippians 2. And in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, we see in the, the, in the clouds uh, of glory at nighttime, Jesus, the Son of Man, comes before the Ancient of Days, and he is given dominion over everything. That is the glory that we're used to thinking about. But the glory of Jesus starts really, well, before time. But as, a, as the Son of Man on earth, it begins, the process really intensifies in the cross. And we see it in his face. <clears throat> we see it in his face. It's a powerful place where he has been and where he's come. <clears throat> in Isaiah fifty-two fourteen, describing Christ on the cross, said, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. When you see the crucified Christ, you see him, you see the beginning of glory there. And it's not just the flare and the spectacular, it's not the fireworks of the 4th of July. It's the, the crown of thorns. It's the beating. It's the taking of our sin upon him. There is the face of Jesus. He is the one that we adore. And John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here's the one you want to look at. Here's the one we want to focus on. And let me just say at the end of this that <clears throat> if there's ever something you want to fix your attention to and your eyes on, it's looking at Christ in the face of Christ. He is the one who has the glory. He is the one who, as we do this, changes us. His love for us is extraordinary. You see that at the cross. You see it in the statement of John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You see it everywhere in the face of Jesus Christ. You see him dealing with a leper who's cast out. You see his face of compassion turning to him. You see it uh, as he's dealing with all, all types of people and all types of problems. He's one who's filled with patience and kindness. But you also see it when he's brutalized on the cross for your and my salvation. I see the face of Christ. 
And as I look at him, I'm starting to be changed. I'm starting to be transformed. I'm starting to be transformed into his likeness. And there is, you know, I think Paul, as he's writing this, may have been doing cartwheels. He is so overwhelmed with joy at the prospect of being changed into the one he so loves, to be to become more and more in the image of Christ. <clears throat> he must have, I, I bet he's, when he set down his pen from this one, he just was filled with the presence of God. <clears throat> and as he thought about him being transformed, he himself, he said, we are being transformed. <clears throat> uh, it, is an, it is a blessing beyond compare. And so, the application for me, from me to you from this passage would be to look to Christ. <clears throat> it's not about works. It's not about anything less than looking to Christ. Looking to Christ. Seeing the people around you. You know, some of the people who need him most look, look like they need him the least. That is, that they're pretty self-set in their own ways, but they're the ones who need him most. But looking to see Christ everywhere you look, I see Christ. Do that, and as you look to him, it's kind of like a mirror reflection, Patricia and I were talking last night, that suddenly your image is starting to change. You're starting to look more like your master. And it's a, it's a glorious place to go. We're being changed from one degree of glory to another as we fix our attention on Christ. Keep looking to him. Look to him. Look to Christ. Be changed. Be transformed by his Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you're in the, you're, you're in the wonderful place of changing us, that you loved us so much that you gave yourself for us. You gave your son to die for our sins. I pray, Lord, that you would help our blindness to be replaced by vision of him, that we may look to Jesus and see you and be transformed by your hand, by your Holy Spirit, that we become more and more like you. Lord, that we'd be pleasing to you and bring glory to your name. You are marvelous in every way. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.